The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to pick up the conversation again on the Belt and Road. And before everybody kind of turns off the podcast and says enough about the Belt and Road, Really, you want to stay with us on this show because we're really all trying together to figure out what exactly is this thing. Now, over the past few weeks, we've had a couple of different shows where we've talked to different stakeholders and different analysts about their interpretations of Belt and Road. And one of the interesting things is that you don't get a consistent answer. Here in China, when I talk to scholars or I talk to business leaders and even people in the political world, each one tells me something different. And then when we talked to uh, Zhang Zhu, who was the columnist at Zijing, he said it was purely an economic thing. And so I'm, I'm still confused. And here I am kind of working this out on the air to try and figure out what Belt and Road is. And Kobus, the other day I was looking through the news and then I saw this headline from the Jackson Herald newspaper that covers Jackson County, Georgia. Now that's in northeastern Georgia, about as far away from the Belt and Road as you're ever going to get. And it was, a, it was an editorial that said, China poised to dominate the world order. China's making moves that will eventually make it, not the U.S., the world's most dominant economic, military, and political country on earth. And I was thinking about that in the context of the Belt and Road, that maybe I've been thinking about this in all the wrong way. It's not a policy. It's not an agenda. This is a very Western American kind of, you know, Eurocentric way of looking at politics. This is something far more ambiguous than just simply a policy or an agenda. And looking at that headline, it made me think that this is really about a new order for the world and the, geopolit the geopolitical structure rather than a specific policy. Yeah, that, that, that is increasing how I'm starting to look at it as well. Um, and, you know, and then when you, when you talk about usually when, when the, the phrase new world order comes up, I mean, it's always very intimately connected to essentially who's going to run the world. You know, the, the, when it was coined in, the, in the, the first Bush presidency in the early 90s, you know, it was a, a way to talk about the, the decline of the Soviet Union and, and a kind of a, what came to be known as kind of a uni, unipolar world, world arrangement. Um, so it's, it's, it's very easy when, when, when that phrase comes up to look at it from uh, kind of from from the the kind of a top down perspective, and particularly to look at at kind of dominant global powers. But I think there's a, there's a way of looking at at the concept of a, a shift in a world order to also look at how all of the other smaller countries and other smaller entities are going to be rearranging their affairs, you know, in, in in order to to reflect kind of larger larger changes in in global power. Um, and the fact that the Belt and Road has so much to do with all of these little arrangements, you know, um, as as these different countries, you know, strike new deals with China, I think it that itself kind of it it, it opens the 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 chance, the, the opportunity to talk about how world arrangements work outside of this idea of a, a unique 
bipolar situation or two big powers or whatever. You know, kind of like you, you can look at it from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And that's why it's important for our discussion today in terms of where Africa fits in all of this, because understanding where Africa is on the Belt and Road and in this ecosystem, because I don't even know what the right word is, of what Belt and Road is, is going to be very important. So to get some perspective on this, uh, we really couldn't have found anybody better. Uh, Bruno Masaich is the author of The Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order, a new book that's out this year. He's also the author of Dawn of Eurasia on the Trail of the New World Order. So two books about the world order. I told you this was the perfect guest for us. Uh, You may be familiar with Bruno. He's the former Portuguese minister for European affairs and also a senior non-resident fellow at the Hudson Institute in New York. A very good good evening, Bruno, from Beijing. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm going to take... Go right into your book. Uh, I had a chance to read the whole thing this weekend, and it was, uh, again, it really was very eye-opening for me because it allowed me to think about Belt and Road in a very different context. You said right early on in your book that the Belt and Road is not an entity with fixed rules. Rather, it is deliberately intended to be informal, unstructured, and opaque. So the lack of transparency in these Belt and Road deals that we're seeing all over the world, what was interesting for me is to think about that actually may be a feature and not a bug. I mean, everybody keeps calling for more transparency, but what you're saying is that there actually may be some intentionality to this. But the bottom line you write is that the Belt and Road is about interdependence. And I think that's a good place for us to start our discussion, for you to talk about those key concepts about the opacity, the informal nature of it, and the interdependence. If you could kind of wrap those together and what the thesis of your book was, that'd be a good place for us to open our discussion. Sure, those are all very good points um, and critical to understanding the Belt and Road. Now, on transparency, uh, well, to some extent, China doesn't believe in transparency, but you could also argue that China has a different concept of transparency. Just now in the Belt and Road Forum, there was an impassioned defense of transparency, but it means something different from what we mean. Uh, It means essentially um, visibility from different departments, that uh, every department should know what what another department or where a state-owned enterprise is doing. Um, So there are different concepts. There are are different ways of looking at the world. There are different cultures. That's a big part of my book. Uh, The informality is also very clear. Uh, The the initiative may change. Uh, The initiative many times is negotiated in private. Uh, It's not put to paper. Many of the agreements take that nature. Uh, one of the aspects of my book is that it was written on the road and talking to people. I think that comes across on, on many pages. I think it's the only way to write a book about the Belt and Road because uh, it's not there on the internet and not everything is available. Uh, and you have to make an effort to try to see how the pieces fit together. So to, to pick up on that point, um, you know, you, you mentioned, as Eric also mentioned, you mentioned that that to a certain extent it being informal, unstructured and opaque um, is that they are features rather than, than necessarily design flaws. But what, what are the, the uh, what does China gain from having it be informal and unstructured? You know, kind of from the outside, it would look like that. That would cause more instability. It would, you know, it would make it difficult to more more difficult to organize across such a wide swath of projects. So, so what what are what are the what are the pros on the on you know on it being informal well, and unstructured? That will get us to to Eric's point about interdependence. But but before I get to that, so the advantages of of a certain opaqueness. Um, well, clearly China can do a number of things that it couldn't do if this was uh, to be discussed in public and you had to reach a consensus. 
um, you know, I always wonder about those first uh, few months after the Belt and Road where everyone uh, jumped on the bandwagon and tried to see a way to contribute. And I couldn't help thinking that in the West, in Europe in particular, if a big initiative of this kind was put forward by, uh, by the top political leader, every intellectual, every businessman the next day would be trying to shoot it down because that's the culture, the adversarial culture that we have. Um, if you look at my book, there's a, a, a long section about Pakistan where I discuss the long-term uh, economic and, and social plan for Pakistan. Uh, and that's not public. And there's a reason it is not public, uh, because the resistance to it uh, would make it more difficult to achieve the goals. Now, quickly to the question of interdependence. I think the important question here is to ask, why does China need this? Uh, sometimes I see a headline or an op-ed arguing, why doesn't China focus on technology rather than on the Belt and Road? Well, the Belt and Road is about technology. It's about uh, technological development. It's about the technological upgrading of the Chinese economy. Uh, the theory behind it, which I think is really, really important to understand, is that China cannot do it within its own borders. It needs a global plan to transform the Chinese economy. And that's a vision they, they get from their own history, but also, uh, incidentally, from Marxism, uh, which was also, of course, uh, Marx and Lenin. Uh, very interested in the idea of the world system, of an integrated world system. And you cannot change your status without changing the nature of the world system as a whole. I want to come back to this concept of interdependence because you spent a lot of the book talking about it. And it's one of the themes in Chinese history that's very important to understand. And as I was reading your book, I thought it paired very, very nicely with Howard French's 2018 book, Everything Under the Heavens, how the past helps shape China's push for global power. And I really recommend people to read those two books together uh, because there's some complementarity to it. And Howard talks a lot about, again, the interdependence that China had within its own, in Asia, for example, in its relationship with Vietnam and Korea, and even to some extent, uh, Japan and some of its neighboring part, neighboring uh, you know regions. They weren't necessarily countries, but kingdoms and whatnot. And yet here we see again that China's trying to recreate a sense of interdependence. And this is very, very important to understanding the mindset behind the loans issues. And so people are saying, you know, there's the debt trap diplomacy narrative that the United States is pushing very aggressively. But if we're really talking about creating a network of interdependent states with China, then China's not necessarily motivated or inclined to crush these countries on the debt. It wants to create the dependence. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the interdependency that you were talking about in the book? Right. Well, states, countries uh, cannot develop on their own. Um, they need to be uh, integrated in global supply chains, in relations of uh, economic cooperation, uh, but also dependence. Um, that's how China increasingly sees the world. I think the big change happened because uh, economic globalization has been for 40 years a very important uh, uh, a platform of Chinese thinking. Um, but the idea of political and cultural globalization, I think, is relatively new and, and really arises with the Belt and Road. So now we have a system that is not only economic, it's not just about economic globalization, but a system where countries are also supposed to talk to each other. They're also supposed to articulate their economic plans, to articulate their industrial policies. That's very much the, the vision that, that China has. Now, whether this is going back to the past or whether it's new, uh, I have, I think, a, um, a, a rather uh, a subtle, at least I tried to make it subtle view of this that I developed in, in my first book, The Dawn of Eurasia. 
Well, to some extent, you use the elements from your past. Uh, but I think we also need to understand that we're talking about more than China now. And whether we think it started exactly 100 years ago with the May 4th movement uh, or with the uh, Communist Revolution or perhaps even before, uh, it is a different China. And in some sense, there's more in common between modern China and modern West than between modern China and uh, ancient China. Uh, that's also, I think, very, very important to, to understand and uh, don't uh, uh, overemphasize the continuities in Chinese history. So if, you, if we talk about political interdependence, um, what do you foresee that looking like, um, especially in the context of the, the massive kind of power gap between China and many, many of the other Belt and Road countries? Um, are we looking at just an intensification of, of existing bilateral relationships or do you foresee new institutions being created during the Belt and Road process? No. No, I don't. Again, going back to the point about informality, I think China would resist that. How does it work in practice? I think we're finally starting to see it. Uh, I think after five years, we're starting to see it in practice. Uh, we've seen it with Pakistan. We've seen it with Malaysia over the past few months. Uh, there's clearly a lot of uh, discussions, uh, consultations going on, and uh, power is being exercised. Uh, it moves in both directions, by the way, but obviously China is in, in the top position and has a lot more leverage and, and a lot more influence. But I think we've seen also how uh, Malaysia was able to bring down the costs uh, from the uh, uh, East Coast Railway connection considerably by one third. And we've seen how Pakistan uh, is claiming to have even changed the nature of the China-Pakistan economic corridor with the new government and Imran Khan to have made it more social, uh, turned more towards jobs and less to heavy infrastructure. So there's a, a very intense uh, uh, process uh, where the two countries try to influence each other, and we should be aware that China is going to have a lot more influence. But in some respects, political borders are becoming more diffuse. So with that in mind, there's an element of politics in all of this. And yet when we talk to the Chinese side of things, they say, no, 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 this is purely an economic uh, you know, initiative. This is not a political initiative. If you talk to the United States, they're very, very clear. Mike Pompeo, the United States Secretary of State, has come out time and time again saying this is about the expansion of Chinese political and military power around the world. They are entrapping countries with debt, and then once these countries can't pay, they then switcheroo and the politics and the military take in. You alluded to that this is part of the creation of a new Chinese world order. And implicit in that, or explicit in that, is the exercise of political power. Can you talk about the nexus of economics, politics, and military? Right. Um, that's a good question. I think we need a little bit of, of conceptual uh, clarity here. Um, so obviously it's about politics, if by politics you mean something like economic policy, industrial policy. China doesn't think of economics and, and, and politics as separate in that way. On the contrary, of course, uh, they think that the economy should be subject to political guidance and political direction. What they mean when they say it's not political uh, is that it is not geopolitical, uh, that it doesn't reflect a certain uh, plan to uh, change the distribution of power uh, in the global order. Uh, I, of course, disagree with that, and it's something I've been discussing with uh, uh, my Chinese colleagues and, and Chinese friends uh, in the academia, in the think tanks here. Uh, from the very start, when I started arguing with them, there's a passage in my first book where I go to a think tank, and the response I get is, you only think this is about geopolitics because you have been educated in this Western way of thinking. 
but we, uh, the Chinese, we think differently. Uh, in that book and, and in this second book, I, I try to show that, uh, well, even if China doesn't want it to be geopolitical, it will be geopolitical, it already is. But I, of course, also think that China knew this from the beginning and, and planned accordingly. Um, and in that vein, um, how do you foresee Western countries reacting to the Belt and Road as it becomes bigger and, and more developed? Um, I, I think we've seen quite a, a, a divergence of uh, of reactions so far. You know, with with Italy joining um, and and the United States, you know, raising all of these concerns. But like, you know, what do you think Western reactions will look like in the future? Uh, well, it looks like a complete fragmentation, and I, I guess it will look like that. Um, I don't think that will be corrected. Uh, we have Western countries, even members of NATO, let us say, all over the place on the Belt and Road. Uh, some countries very enthusiastic about it, and other countries, in particular the United States, uh, trying actively to undermine the initiative. I don't think this is excessive uh, language uh, by now. Um, and, of course, India very skeptical. Uh, Many countries in Europe very skeptical. Uh, Australia, just to give another example, Australia, yes, uh, the government in Canberra is skeptical uh, with the current government. It could change with the Labour government. But incidentally, uh, a province has, uh, has uh, joined the Belt and Road. Um, so you actually have a situation in, in Australia where uh, one of the states is uh, negotiating directly with the Chinese state on the Belt and Road, whilst the government in Canberra remains very skeptical about that. Um, I think it's a good example, a good metaphor of uh, the confusion and the fragmentation that you get all over the West. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So the United States, as you pointed out, has been adamant in warning other countries not to, to sign up for Belt and Road. And yet countries in South America, the Caribbean, and in Africa in particular, uh, are eager to sign up, it seems like. They're looking at the United States and the IMF warnings from Christine Lagarde and others and saying, you know what, we hear you, but we're taking a hard pass. What are the kinds of things that if you you were to sit down and talk with African leaders to help educate and guide and counsel them about their negotiations and understanding the Belt and Road relationships that you would tell them if the, if that was in fact the opportunity that was provided to you? Well, you have to be tough at negotiating these things, as China is very tough. Um, you got to get better at it. Uh, I think some countries have been doing a good job, um, but clearly, as we saw in the case of Malaysia, there's a lot of room for um, negotiating better when it comes to negotiating uh, with China. I think that's the most important, and uh, I, I never really subscribed to the idea of the Belt and Road as a, as a debt trap and a form of debt trap diplomacy. It will depend very much on how uh, good a negotiator you are, and I think some countries will benefit from it and others will not. Um, it's still, I have to say, and... Uh, um, tell me if you if you find counterexamples. It's still very difficult to find a country where you could say it's in worse shape now than it was five years ago because of the Belt and Road. Uh, maybe that will happen in the future, but so far there are countries that have practically not benefited from it. But to, to be in worse shape uh, than than five years well, ago, the, I, I don't. See I guess any that, examples that, of that just I guess that just depends on your view on the debt. I mean, Djibouti now has ninety percent of its external debt 
uh, to China. And they're a Belt and Road country. And people are saying that this is potentially vulnerable to them. Um, I, I mean, you know, and I guess I, I want to just push you a little bit. You said you got to get tough. But let's take a country like Senegal, for example. No real natural resources, massive amount, massive trade deficit with China. It doesn't have a lot of leverage over China to get tough. It's a Belt and Road country now. When you say get tough and got to get better at negotiating, what is a small country like Senegal, which could be Ghana, it could be Botswana, it could be any of these countries, or even Kenya for that matter, which just lost the second phase expansion loan for the standard gauge railway? When, when you say get tough, what specifically are you saying that these smaller countries should do to leverage themselves? Well, the example I'd give you, Benny, maybe one could say it's not a small country, but Malaysia clearly uh, threatened China uh, or at least uh, raised the possibility of canceling all these projects that are important for China and where China had already invested considerable political and, and financial capital, and uh, that got them to a, to a better position. Um, some African countries are not going to be in, in, in such a good position and then they have the, the same kind of skills uh, that uh, Mahathir brought to the new Malaysian government. Uh, but at the limit, you could drop out. Uh, that's always a possibility, isn't it? I think the problem many times is that they have no alternative. There's no alternative proposition coming from Europe or coming from America. Um, that would also benefit them. I think uh, Djibouti, uh, obviously, uh, Djibouti has... I was in Djibouti for uh, three weeks uh, uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, many problems in Djibouti, of course, starting with the political regime. Uh, that's where I would start. But you do see some results from the heavy investment. Uh, you do see the country becoming a global hub for logistics, for ports. Uh, and that's something that, that uh, Djibouti has benefited from, a country that really has no natural resources, uh, not even agriculture, volcanic land. Um, so um, it is a difficult analysis, which no one seems to be very interested in doing, carefully going uh, to all these countries and see what is the positives and the negatives and, and reaching a, a final evaluation. Speaking about Djibouti, the, obviously it became famous for, for hosting China's first overseas military base, um, which is, and, and that expansion is frequently linked to Belt and Road as, as a larger project as well. To which extent do you see, uh, the, you know, as Belt and Road goes on, that it will require a, a, an enlargement of China's international military footprint? Um, you know, is, are we looking at possible future bases? Yeah, no, I have no doubt about that. I think we'll we'll be looking at them uh, uh, very soon, uh, if not already, as uh, seem to be news of a, of a small base in in Tajikistan, for example. I think we'll have others uh, all over the Indian. Uh, again, the dynamic you could ask is this something deliberate, thought from the start, or something that China will have to do, um, irrespective of of the original plans. Uh, a little bit of the story of the American Empire throughout the 20th century. I don't think American decision makers started with the idea of having 800 military bases all over the world, but that's where they are now. And China will will, will see the same dynamics. Uh, you have economic interests abroad. You have many of your citizens working and living abroad. Uh, and I think we'll have uh, incidents uh, affecting those economic interests and perhaps, hopefully not, those citizens and, and China will be forced to move in. Um, I remember a conversation in Djibouti where a Chinese businessman says that he feels more comfortable because there's a military base there. Uh, what does this mean? Well, I think it means two different things. First, it means that the country is potentially more protected from terrorism or, or insurrection or civil war. Um, that's the benign meaning of the sentence. The less benign meaning of the sentence is that a Chinese businessman will be more comfortable 
because the risk, for example, of nationalization will be uh, smaller if there's a Chinese military base there. That's another consideration. But again, it's not something... Uh, we can talk about the different values, and I think we will uh, later in the podcast, but this is not something we haven't seen before with the British and American empires, where economic and political influence are fused together, and they work to uh, advance each other in turn. Normally, when there are changes on the magnitude that you're talking about in the international order, as you've alluded to the British and the Americans, uh, war has not been very far behind. Now, I'm not necessarily a subscriber to the Theocides trap, where that said that inherently China and the United States are destined for war as an incumbent power uh, is challenged by an ascending power. However, though, there is a lot of precedent for when these tectonic plates start to move, that things shake. Um, when you look down the road and you see the expansion of China's military footprint, you see the liberal world order that a lot of us are accustomed to and the Western-led international order that has basically run the world for the past 70 to 80 years since the, uh, the end of World War II, um, coming to at least to be changed, if not to be in many parts of the world, overturned by a rising Chinese influence. What are we looking at in the year 2049 when you write that the Belt and Road is expected to be finished and we'll move into a different phase? What's, uh, what's the world look like in the next 20 to 30 years in your world? Well, I think that's the most important question we can ask now. Are we heading towards a major conflict, a major global conflict between China and the United States? Uh, I should start by saying that the idea of Thucydides' trap to me is uh, you know, not, not worth uh, wasting your time on. Um, just a very simple, uh, <laughs> very uh, primitive form. He got a lot of mileage out of that book, by the way. Sure. He really got a lot of mileage out of it. Of course, so. I think even, even here in Beijing, where, where people seem to like the book a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's a, a very a very simple rudimentary formula that's not going to help us a lot. Uh, it's a very complicated new world, uh, not so much with interdependence, but also with a global system that in some respects works on its own and in some respects has become more powerful than states themselves, a global system of technology, of trade, uh, of infrastructure, of currency. Uh, all this, I think, changes the nature of the game. Uh, and uh, I would predict... An, I have to check back again in a couple of decades, but I would predict that we're going to have forms of conflict almost permanent of the kind that we already see with the trade war. Uh, but I, I, I don't see that there's the room and the space uh, for countries to actually head into major open military conflict uh, anymore. I know many people have made this prediction in the past uh, and been proven wrong, uh, but it is a new world, uh, certainly a new world uh, of... Uh, uh, where, where states are no longer entirely sovereign. And that has its negative aspects, but I think it's positive aspects as well, uh, namely by making conflict less likely, in my opinion. So as, as you alluded to, you know, the Belt, one of the, the big features of the Belt and Road is that it, it challenges um, the values of the current liberal global order. Um, how do you feel that it challenges it? Like, what, what, what are some of the value differences between those two, those two orders? We've talked already about one, one thing I think is important, uh, transparency, the idea of uh, public reason, uh, going back all the way to Kant. Uh, it's really critical to our societies. Uh, even when we feel that a process has not been transparent, we regard it as a failure that has to be corrected next time. Human nature is what it is, flawed and so on. But we aspire towards an ideal of transparency. Uh, I think China, the question is not so much that they fall short, 
We in the West tend to appeal, oh, please, a little more transparency. The question is that China does not aspire to the same ideal. It hasn't gone through the same uh, uh, process that we've been through, through the same uh, um, ideas, uh, the same uh, ideas of enlightenment and public reason. And so its its values are different. Uh, and transparency of the Western kinds is certainly not a value that China would treasure. Uh, I think also... Um, the question of uh, the role of morality in politics. Uh, we are very uncomfortable with moral language in politics. I think uh, it's pretty easy to trace that back to Machiavelli and even the Greeks. Uh, there's a, a discussion about religion and morality should take place in private life. Politics should be real politic. And in China, to some extent, of course, does not subscribe to this. Uh, we're seeing a heavily moralized language. Countries are supposed to be grateful. Uh, they're supposed to be uh, friends. When a country does not uh, do what China expects it to do, it has been ungrateful. Whereas I think, uh, you know, the language we're used to, the language that the United States would use or that Germany would use in the context of the European Union would be something like the country X has not honored its commitments. Uh, but that's not the language that, that China uses. Um, I speculate along these two dimensions in the book, but one could look for many others. Uh, it's a tricky business to try to identify different values. Uh, you need a lot of... Uh, experience of the, of the different societies and a lot of uh, historical subtlety. So I try not to go overboard in my book, uh, but it's already clear that there, there are uh, lines along which you can draw divisions and separations. I'm curious, you're in Beijing now. You have been talking to people in the academic circles and think tank communities, as you talked about. What's the reaction that they have to your book? You're a foreigner talking about China, something that is absolutely essential to the current geopolitical outlet and economic outlook for China. What's the reaction to your book from Chinese folks? Um, there's, uh, well, right now there's there's a certain uneasiness about having a foreigner write about the Belt and Road uh, in the sense that he will not subscribe to what is the official view. Um, and uh, there's an, an attempt to, to control the narrative uh, as the Belt and Road uh, gets into uh, trickier waters. Um, I think some people uh, recognize that the book tries to be impartial, tries to look at the question from both sides. I describe the book uh, often in my talks and conferences as trying to make the Western view of the Belt and Road and the Chinese view of the Belt and Road communicate and talk to each other. Since they don't talk to each other in the real world, they might as well uh, talk in my book, and that's what I try to uh, in, in some sense, uh, um, uh, make happen there. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the mood in Beijing now is, is not so much to have an open dialogue about that. Uh, there's a return to first principles and uh, pushing forward with the Belt and Road. Uh, so in some sense, uh, uh, it is difficult. Um, one also has to realize, of course, this is obvious, but it is even more vivid if you're here that there are conversations you can have in private and then there are conversations you, you can have in public and, and there's a difference between them. There are many different levels at which to communicate in China. That's another reason to come to China, to, to be here, uh, because uh, certainly you, you cannot get a sense of what is happening here from the outside or coming here twice a year for a, a high-level conference. Bruno Masayish is the author of The Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order, Really indispensable reading. Again, I recommend it in the context of Howard French's 2018 book, Everything Under the Heavens. Both of those together 
are fantastic books and understanding where we are going in uh, in terms of the, the Chinese outlook for, for foreign policy, for economic policy and whatnot, and its relations, particularly with places like Africa. So, Bruno, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insights, and I hope more people read the book. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and what your activities are, uh, where can they uh, follow you on, on social media? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, McKay's Bruno. I think it's pretty easy to find me there through Google or, or otherwise. And uh, check out also my first book, which is very different. talks about Turkey, Russia, uh, European Union, uh, and, and tries to put the Belt and Road into, into the wider Eurasian world. The second book, Belt and Road, is a, a detailed examination of the project itself. Well, we'll have links to both of those books in the show notes. Bruno, thank you so much, and, and best of luck with the rest of your trip in China. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure. Kobus, the number one takeaway from the discussion with Bruno for me was this idea of how the Chinese are using a different moral moral structure, a different outlook, and it's so imperative on African negotiators to understand this and the need to understand Chinese language, history, politics, culture, in order to understand what they're doing and how they're thinking and how they're seeing the world. Because I've said this many times and I really firmly believe it, the Chinese see the world in very, very different terms than the West does. And so much, I think, of the African geopolitical foreign policy outlook has been shaped by the West. And the fact that the Chinese are coming at this from a totally different perspective, they're playing by a different set of rules, and I'm not convinced that everybody really understands that yet. And the fact that this issue of transparency and opacity is all part of that and understanding it. Is it a feature? Is it a bug? We're not really sure. But it's in that spectrum. And sometimes it's a feature, sometimes it's a bug, but understanding when is super hard. And so this is the reason why I think we need to see more African negotiators really apply themselves to Chinese history, culture, language, and politics. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Lee. I think we, you know, this is such a big tech, tectonic, we keep going back to that word tectonic, like shift, you know, which which essentially shakes all of the buildings around us as, as, it, as it happens. And that will definitely lead to people feeling uncomfortable and maybe even feeling a little bit traumatized in terms of how, of, of seeing things that they're really accustomed to, ways of doing things that they're very accustomed to suddenly changing. But at the same time, I think um, it looks like the kind of trauma that people in the West are feeling a, a, about this is going to be different from the trauma that Africans feel about it. Um, because, you know, you, you mentioned that, that obviously Africa has been extremely uh, influenced by Western thinking and Western Western ways of, of of arranging politics, but that you know, the, the, it's, it's it's not like they became used to that out of free choice. You know, kind of that that was that itself was a process of being forcibly and frequently in a very kind of unhappy way being kind of inserted into a system that isn't your own. And there's a lot of discussion, I think, in Africa about how African politics should be Africanized. You know, what are African core values and and how they should how they should um, you know be expressed in in, in political um, realms. And I think this issue that he mentioned of the moral language of geopolitics, the way that the way that there is the, all of this language of 
gratitude and, you know, kind of like friendly relations and, you know, in, in Chinese geopolitics, there might be an interesting kind of overlap with, with, with ideas that Africans have about how politics should work. Um, you know, how, how African politics could work if it weren't always Fit, fitted into a Western system. Um, and, you know, my, I'm, I'm no expert on, on, on African political philosophy, um, you know, but I think it might, it would be very interesting to see whether there are um, overlaps there, um, you know, and, and ways of new thinking about what politics could mean. And to that end, the concept of interdependence that he talked about, to me, is the reason why I think the debt trap narrative uh, will fall flat and continue to fall flat that China wants to create dependence. It doesn't necessarily want to exert firm political power that is direct political power. I think that's a very colonial way of looking at power, a very imperial way in the old 20th century, 19th century view of power. And I think the Chinese, the way they've exercised power over the millennia is very, very different. And that's one of the reasons why we have to look at these this approach in different ways. He talked a little bit about in the book the, the creation of industrial parks as part of the, the strategy to foster interdependence. I've never seen the, 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 the industrial parks as part of a bigger geopolitical strategy. And Bruno put it as part of this idea of by connecting these countries with, you know, state-owned enterprises, infrastructure development, all the different things that come along with IPs, it's fostering that interdependence. And I thought that was super interesting. Uh, it was a little bit disappointing that people will say, you know, African countries have to be more assertive. They have to stand up. I just don't know what a country like Ghana or Senegal, the smaller countries can do to stand up to China. There's not much leverage that they have. So I think in this, they've basically said, we're leaning into the Belt and Road. We're turning away from the U.S. in that sense. Thank you, U.S. We're, we hear you. But you know what? Forget it. We're going into, we're putting our cards down with the Chinese. I just don't think that they have a whole lot of options. And at the end of the day, they have fewer options than, say, Mahathir Mohammed in Malaysia or the Pakistanis as well, which have regional geopolitical influence based on their strategic location in proximity to China. Yeah, no, 100%. I 100% agree. But of course, you know, Malaysia has that kind of leverage now, but it didn't always, you know. Um, and, and you know, a few decades ago, uh, Malaysia was in a very similar position as Africa is now. Um, and this is a multi-decade project, you know, kind of so, so who knows where Africa will be in 30 or 40 years. But the, I think... I think the the issue then also becomes, you know, it, it, it's it, while I was listening to him, I kept thinking that oh, this this really comes down to national politics all the time, you know, like this the 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 potential for for a population to get a really good deal out of China is crucially dependent on which government they have talking for them in that negotiation room, you know? Um, and so, so a lot of, a lot of it comes from this, these kind of larger kind of systems of influence, but a lot of it also comes from the specific people, these, you know, these populations elect. Um, and that's always a thing in Africa, you know, because, because leadership in Africa can be, you know, not great. Um, so, so I think, that, you know, it, 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 it draws us back to this issue of like what African people actually want from their own governments. Okay, after three shows now in the past few months on Belt and Road, I promise you we're going to take a break from Belt and Road for a little bit. But I am glad that we were I had an opportunity to speak with three different people, Eric Meister Yino, 
Zhang Zhu and now Bruno about different perspectives on the Belt and Road because it is so important and it is not fixed. It is fluid in its definition and whatnot. So we hope that these different conversations have helped you frame you're thinking about Belt and Road the same way it has for us. I have to admit, I'm still a little bit confused. I'm sure, Cobus, you are too. Uh, but it is. this is not something that we're expected to understand you know, quickly and easily and cleanly. It's not like the Marshall Plan, which was simple and easy, and that was a policy and a decision that was made at a fixed beginning and almost a fixed end, and boom, infrastructure was built, Europe was on its feet, we're done. This is not it. So it's different. It's complicated. But we will take a break from it. We'll get back to some different topics. In the meantime, we would love to hear what you think. Uh, Kobus and I were always accessible via email. Uh, people have been emailing me questions. Kobus, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've just been writing back these monster responses to yes, people when they ask me hero. questions. Yeah. These, you know, and I just love the discussion. So if you want to talk about China, Africa... Please email us. Let us know what you think. Send us your questions. Send us your comments. We love getting the feedback. It's it's a lot of fun to know that you're listening and you're engaged in what we're doing. So uh, we, again, you know, it's you know, people send me an email. I'm like, cool. Let's write it. Send it back. So be prepared to get a long email back. And I'm responding within 24 hours to most mails. And Kobus, you can find him at Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And you can find me at Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.